This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and thank you for joining us at the How to Love Lit Podcast. This is our 13th episode, and we're really glad that you're sticking with us as we make it halfway through our third book. If you've listened to the previous episode, you know that Christy and I both are advanced placement and international baccalaureate teachers. But if you're not from the United States or attend an American-style system of school, you may not know what that is. So Christy, before we get started today, take a minute and tell us a little bit about your background in teaching and what exactly does it mean to teach AP and IB. Sure, uh, Gary. AP is the acronym for Advanced Placement, which is a program developed by the College Board here in the United States. Um, as everyone knows, it's absolutely impossible to know what everyone is teaching in classrooms across the world. So if you don't know what someone's teaching, how can you possibly know the value of their education? So the College Board, as well as the International Baccalaureate Program, seek to guarantee some sort of equity in education by creating exams that allow students to showcase what they have learned during their high school career meaning that it's kind of an equal playing field no matter where in the world you've gotten your education. Some people think that this means that these programs are prescribing what you teach in a way that could be somewhat undemocratic or tell you what you have to say, but in fact, neither of these programs do that at all. What they do do uh, is they create systems of testing that test uh, open-ended with open-ended questions so they can see how students have learned skills. In my case... We teach analytical reading and writing, so students are given passages and essay questions, and they have to respond to prompts during a time setting. Currently, I teach language and composition, so our exam was May 13th. So on that day, my kids sat for you know three and a half hours responding uh, to prompts written by the college board. Tell us about your exams, Gary. Ah, uh, well, um, my experience is in teaching four different. AP subjects, uh, but they're all in the social sciences. I do AP psychology, AP U.S. history, AP U.S. government, and AP comparative government. 
And our exams are usually more content-driven. They're not so much skills-based like your English exams are. So there's a, a, a very large body of knowledge they have to be aware of to get a passing score on the exam. All right. Well, hopefully they've done well this year. We'll find out, I guess, in a couple of months. It's pretty grueling for the students. Ha ha. Oh. <laughs> it's our revenge. That's true. But, of course, reading the exams is no thing. Uh, we just got back from doing that, and we read... I don't know, a little over 2,000 exams yes. in, in, over the course of a week. You want to tell people how that works? Oh, the, the AP reading, we uh, jokingly refer to it as the academic sweatshop. And it's something that sounds terrible, but actually it's kind of uh, nerdy and geeky and fun all at the same time. And it's a great uh, academic experience working with other college professors and high school teachers and inside your subject grading the national exams that all these students have taken. I like it too. It's a lot of fun. I got some AP buddies. We hang out. So uh, having said that, you ready to get into the book? Yes. All right. Yeah. Back to Raisins. So we're on act two. Let's recap. Last episode, we met the Youngers. The play opens Friday morning and we met them in their apartment in urban Chicago over breakfast. We met Mama Ruth, Benita, Walter, and Travis, they're getting an insurance check in the mail Saturday morning to the tune of $10,000 because of the untimely death of Walter Sr. Walter Jr. really wants the money to open a liquor store. Benita needs the money to go to medical school. Mama wants a house. So in scene two of act one, they get the check and emotions run even higher there's a little lessening of attention when Asagai comes over. Asagai is a, a Nigerian student who is pursuing Benita, and he's brought her gifts from Africa. Now, the last thing we've learned is that Ruth has paid $5 as a down payment for an abortion. So there's all kinds of tension in the household as that scene starts. This scene, well, this act uh, opens up later on on that same day. So it's still Saturday. Asagai has gone home, but we see Benita decked out in her African robes, and she's kind of pretending to be a Nigerian princess. George, a different suitor, is going to come over and, and take her to a play. But not long after George and Benita leave, Mama's going to come back with an announcement. She bought a house. She's going to be excited, but there's a problem. The house is in a white neighborhood. And scene one of act two is going to kind of develop all those ideas. But before we jump into scene two, let's break down all the different elements of scene one that we just that I just kind of gave you a summary of. Uh, sounds good. Uh, the first thing I think is interesting to discuss is this scene with Benita and Walter dancing around to the African music. It doesn't really further the plot so it must be included for another reason so why is this dancing scene included well that's a good question uh, i think there are many different things that this could mean i'm gonna tell you my thoughts and for whatever those are worth you mentioned before when i was a young girl i used to live in africa which is true when i was 13 my family moved to zimbabwe for a period and i absolutely love africa i've gone back a couple more times to tanzania which is in east africa that's a different part than uh, South Africa where I'd been as a little girl. But the, what, I'm, what I'm trying to point out that Africa is a really large place and there's 1,500 
plus languages spoken there, and it represents over 3,000 tribes. So for the predominant language where I lived in Zimbabwe was Shona, and most people spoke that in the kind of the area where I lived. When in Tanzania, where I've gone as an adult, there are many, many different tribal languages kind of all at the same place, and people have to communicate in Swahili. Now, this is interesting when we think about what Hansberry did, because she uses some language that if you just look at it, looks like it's African language. And I kind of thought it was Nigerian. Uh, my mother lived in Nigeria when she was a young woman and I assumed, Oh, I bet it's Yoruba. So I looked it up and I can't find it. And so then I looked up what people were saying about the play and they were saying it's a made up word. So you have to wonder why would she make up a word when you have, you know, 3,000 or 1,500 different languages to choose from. Why would you create your own? And then one author wrote that it was a comp- compilation of parts of three different words that came from three different places in Africa. So if you think about it in that way, which I did, for me, this scene takes a minute out of the play to kind of not only break down the tension that's been building, because I think you kind of have to. It's getting pretty heavy Yes, it's so heavy. Uh, and it wants to create this family connection, the idea that Beneath and Walter, although they're really cruel to each other, they they do love each other. But I also think she wants to kind of celebrate for just a minute and highlight the beauty and complexity of what really is, I think, kind of a misunderstood continent. Lots of people think that Africa is just like a single country. And she enforces this uh, with this with this word, but she also enforces it with this imagery of the hunt and of the lion. Now, lions are intertwined, I think, in everybody's mind, but especially in my mind, with the kind of with glory of Africa. You think of the Lion King and things like that. They're truly the, the king of the savannah. I remember when I was a little girl, my daddy took us uh, to Wangi National Park, which is in... Um, uh, it's in uh, Zimbabwe, and it's absolutely mind-blowing. Anytime you can go to an African uh, reserve, it, it's amazing. It's beautiful, and I remember we spent the night there. And what you do when you go to these places is you just get in a car or you somebody drives you, and you just kind of look around for the whole day. And you look at all the kudu and the giraffes, and those are easy to see. But what you're really wanting to see, what everyone like just – because not everyone gets to, is you're looking for the big five, the rhinos, the elephants, the buffaloes, the lions, and the leopards. And of those, the more elusive ones are going to be the cats. And, of course, the lions are the most grand. Everyone, everyone wants to find a lion. And lions are on the verge of extinction. In Nigeria, there's some places that have less than five. West Africa, where the Serengeti is, there's less than 900, and they're at risk everywhere. So Walter is going to jump on this table, pretend in his mind that he has come back from a hunting expedition in Africa because to kill a lion is like the ultimate of African manliness. And so there he is. He wants to be a brave man, a warrior, a man worthy of respect. But unfortunately, this drunken dream of glory is going to be kind of interrupted and he's going to be awakened from an actually successful man. A schmuck, <laughs> but successful nonetheless. George Murchison. What is interesting about this character, George, and, and why is he different than Walter or even Asagai in your mind? Oh, 
George is a, uh, he's a foil. He's a complete contrast when he walks in the scene. One thing I want to interject here real quick is that Act 2, Scene 1, from my reading, is largely about Walter. You've got, it opens with Walter and Benita's relationship, then it's going to move to Walter and George's relationship, and then it's going to go to Walter and Ruth's relationship, and then it's going to end with Walter and Mama's relationship. So Walter, uh, he's tagging in on every person in this story at this point. And so George shows up. Now, George has education. Um, he has middle class to upper middle class bearing and dress, things of that nature. Uh, he represents some kind of class that Walter is immediately um, jealous of or Walter's made uncomfortable by. And what I want to point out is that Walter uh, does kind of a, ma a man thing. Now, men like to establish hierarchies with other men. And uh, whether they're aware of it or not, if you put five guys standing in a circle looking at each other, each one of them will find a way to make themselves in their own mind more dominant than the other guys in a the group. They'll pick a, a, an attribute or a skill. Walter does this in true guy fashion, and he attacks George, and the, he starts insulting George, and these are not playful insults. These are... He, he begins to uh, insult George for the way he's dressed. And in two different occasions, he says, why do you college boys wear those faggoty-looking shoes? He's going for mean, insulting, demeaning, uh, emasculating insults against George. So I would like to point out to me, this doesn't feel like casual guys just jabbing at each other and having fun. No, he's using profanity, and he's going to say... Uh, oh, look, they're crazy as hell, white shoes, cold as it is. And he's just, he's, and it's not even a very serious insult. Okay, he's wearing white shoes. Right. But he, but he highlight, but the language is so angry. Well, and George is pretentious right away. He makes his comments about, we have to get to the theater. And what time does the theater start? Well, 8.30 Chicago time, but in New York time, where real theater would be, it's 8.40. So he's throwing, uh, these conversations around with, with beneath in front of him. And it insults. Well, it doesn't insult, but it demeans Ruth. Cause she's like, Oh wow. You've been to New York. You know, she doesn't play the hierarchy game. She's going to be humble. And, and he crushes her. Well, and, and he tries to crush Walter again. He says, basically what do New Yorkers do except act like Easterners? That ain't nothing, you know? <laughs> so, well, the only person that can hang with them is Benita, and she comes out. I forgot to mention this even before we got into that about insulting Walter. She's done her hair in the oh. wildest imaginable way. Like she, she, she just. I, I get the impression like those Diana is it Diana Ross that had the big hair in the fifties. The, the singers that they it just went out well, that everywhere. Was the, that was the the buffon, and the that buffon. that was actually. Common. That was the hairstyle of that day. To me, she, I've got the impression she might have gone more natural, like having an afro, which was... Yeah, I think that's what it is. Which was but years I... before that was a, a common statement. Well, she's daring George to go out with her. She is. Yeah. And, and she's trying to get under Walter's skin at the same time. And, of course, George is like, what the heck with the hair? And she says, I don't like assimilationism. This is my, you know, my connection with Africa and... Uh, he oh she's wearing the dress but he makes her change clothes he makes her change clothes and then uh, she comes out and he's going to concede that he likes the hair and they're getting ready to leave but not before George takes another swipe 
at Walter, which is just so mean. Well, they're mean each other, and they're both trying to establish hierarchy. And whereas Walter had taken kind of lowbrow shots at his masculinity, George's last jab is good night, Prometheus, which is interesting because obviously Walter has no idea what the reference means. It's an educated reference. And of course, George knows that. And the the choice of choosing Prometheus is even mean because that's the Titan who created man, who made something, who, who was became a man's man, sort of, if you want to look at it that way. And it's ironic and basically saying you're no man you're nothing right and and, he and says ironic that, insults can cut deeper than average insults <laughs> and walter doesn't know what he meant but he he right. felt cut down and, and there's just no reason uh for that so they leave um they start talking he and walter or he and ruth start talking and, and they're just fighting he picks on her and he says who's fighting you who even cares about you again demeaning sweet ruth right but then he has a, a human moment and that, that anger breaks for a second and he looks at her and they have a discussion where he recognizes they've lost their intimacy and they've lost their trust for each other and that hurts him and he wishes they had it. And of course, if you want to get into uh, some of the psychology of it, he's struggling so hard with his masculinity that yes, if he is having trouble respecting himself... He's having trouble believing that his wife respects him, whether she is or not. It's strictly in his head. Yeah, but it's it's so abusive. And she apologizes for getting pregnant. And uh, she wants so much to please him. Can I buy you, can I get you some milk and all this stuff? But of course, it doesn't help. It's, it's not what he needs. It's not what he wants. And it's not going to fix anything. And so they go on like this. He does soften, I'll concede, until Mama comes in. Oh, then we're back in trouble again. Oh, yes, because Mama's done something, and it's a big something. (laughs) It is a big something. Mama has bought the house. And he doesn't really take it well. (laughs) He takes it, I'm going to say horribly would be a good word to describe how he takes it. But Ruth takes it well. She's so happy, and she just begs him, please, just just be happy. Just be happy for a moment. We're going to have, you know, this nice house and we're going to not have to sleep in the same room and we're going to have a yard and a garden. And and they just take a moment and dream on what that could be until mom adds the small detail that may end up being another issue. (laughs) Well, that will be an issue. And I want to talk about Walter's reaction to the house buying. Um, He just can't contain his bitterness. He's shattered and his bitterness is uncontrollable. And it's because it's about hope. Now, his hope has been destroyed by her spending money on a house. So hope is about the future. And hope in the future makes the present bearable, no matter what it is. But when your hope gets destroyed, it guts your ability to survive today. So his hope has been gutted, been destroyed. And now he sees no way for it to even survive the day. So... Buying a house has brought different reactions. Uh, so the same news uh, devastated the hope in one person, and it caused jubilation in another. Well, it did, because Ruth is saying, Hallelujah, goodbye misery. I don't ever want to see your ugly face again. Now, you think she'd be talking to George if you just read that sentence, but she's not. Right. She's talking to the house. the house. Yeah. yeah. And Mama says, when she goes to talk to Walter directly, 
She said we was going backwards instead of forwards, talking about killing babies and wishing each other was dead. Mom was saying, I did this for out of the best interest of the family. His response is, what you need me to say you done right for, you, the head of the house, you, the head of this family, you run our lives like you want to, which she doesn't, but he's insulting her. He goes on to say, so you butchered up a dream of mine, you who always talking about your children's dreams. So his insult is now cutting at the heart of her mothering. Yes. And he accuses her, uh, of stealing something that he really had no right of, making her responsible for his own happiness is not a fair thing to do at all. She didn't, he doesn't, she's not required to do that for him. Well, is it safe to say that in Act 2, Scene 1, Walter is a very, very bitter, angry man? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think we've clearly established He's that. He's a schmuck. I will say this. Ruth isn't upset, and she asks Mom, I like this, she goes, is there a... Is there a whole lot of sunlight? And remember, sun represents yes. hope. And mm-hmm. Mama says, yes, child, there's a whole lot of sunlight. And so she gets a happy. And they talk about a yard for Travis to play in and a place to dig a garden. So their dream is about family. Yeah, and it looks like it could happen. Yes. With or without Walter. Or they may drag Walter. I guess they assume he'll come along. <laughs> He's got to stay somewhere. What's he going to do? All right. Scene two uh, takes place Friday night a few weeks later. So at Rise, they're packing crates, uh, trying to get kind of things ready to go. And we see George and Benita talking again. Uh, It's an interesting exchange between these two. Maybe you can give me some enlightenment as to why this crops up right here in the book. It ends up being a discussion between a very, very practical person and a very idealistic person. George being a practical person and Benita being the idealistic person. Yes, well, George is practical. I mean, he's been, of course he's practical. They've made money. He doesn't doesn't need to be idealistic. And, you know, George said, it's so funny because when I read this with my kids, I always ask, depending on what kind of class it is. So if you have an AP class, they like to think that they're philosophical. and they They've have, learned just enough to be yes, dangerous. Yes, they have deep thoughts. But standard kids, uh, they're super pragmatic. If I ask them, why are you in school? They'll tell me, I'm in school to get a degree, to go to college, to get another degree, to make money, to have wealth, to be happy, to buy a boat, or whatever they want. <laughs> whatever order they <laughs> Whatever. They're not going to have, so I can decide on the, the deep moments of life. And so you see that juxtaposition right here. You know, Beneath is still dreamy and idealistic, and George is like, whatever. Yeah. Well, I like what he says about her thoughts. First of all, she wants to talk. He says, we talk all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay? I don't, we don't need any more talk. Uh, then he goes on to say about talking. All about your thoughts. Why do that? Because the world will go on thinking what it thinks regardless of what your thoughts are. It's super practical. It I'm, is. It I is. have a brother that's like this. He's a very successful businessman. And he's like, get to the bottom line. Get yes. to the bottom line. We don't need to have this discussion. Well, then Benita says, well, then why read books? Why go to school? And he has it point A to point Z. All right. I like the, the stage direction with artificial patience. <laughs> Counting on his fingers. It's simple. You read books to learn facts, to get grades, to pass the course, to get a degree. 
That's all. It has nothing to do with thoughts. And that's the funniest line right there to me. It has nothing to do with thoughts. I feel like I've heard that statement. Oh, like many times. Many times. And, and I, you know, I understand that. And, of course, she does not. She's It frustrates her because she wants to ponder with him. That's the point of her being with a relation in a relationship at all. Right. Well, they obviously relate very differently. Yeah, it's not going to work out. <laughs> it's going to struggle, man. It's going to struggle. All right. Right then we get interrupted by Mrs. Johnson. Now, I think it's, I mean, it's not important, but it's interesting to note that this part was actually cut out of the original performance. She was not a part of the play at all. And I read a couple of uh, explanations about this, and it really came down to it was just cheap. They needed to cut. Oh, okay. They needed to cut some money out, and that's because a whole other person. She's a great character to be thrown in at this point, and we're going to find out why. I mean, I haven't seen a production without her in it, but it would be lacking. Well, it is in one sense, and it made it longer, and so they were trying to shorten it up a little bit, mm-hmm. and, they, and they said, "Ah, eh. it's she's cute, she's funny." She's relatable, but she's got to go. I guess I'm not a director. I know they have to make tough choices. But anyway, it's super funny. Mrs. Johnson is also extremely unlikable. She is. And uh, her nuances jumped out at me. And I think she's worthy of discussion because of that. So Mrs. Johnson, first of all, is the older busybody that just shows up. And to understand her, you have to understand she's nice. Now, there's a very big difference between nice and kind, okay? Kind is somebody who looks out for your best interest. Nice is somebody who's setting you up to use you and hoping that you don't detect it. Okay? Oh, yeah. Well, Mama's already asked to borrow some sugar or something earlier in the play, and she told her no. <laughs> well, there you go. And she's also passive-aggressive. And what's interesting about passive-aggressive people is that you've Feel it before you know it. And so if you're watching this play, you can instantly feel the passive aggressiveness of this woman in the play. Well, for one thing, she's too nice. I'm just so happy for y'all. And this here child looks like she could just pop open with happiness, don't she? Where's all the rest of the family? Well, she's not happy and she doesn't sound happy, but her words are happy. Well, that's what nice is. Nice is masking your true intentions. And then she goes on to to get some gossip. She's still going out with the little Merchinson boy. And then she goes, that's lovely. You got lovely children. And, of course, Mama's, like, used to it. Do you want pie? Get her some pie. (laughs) Right. She she understands that the, the compliments are a setup, that they're not genuine. And then she does the meanest thing of all. I guess y'all seen the news. What's all over the colored paper this week? And Mama's going to say no. She goes, you mean you ain't read about them colored people that was bombed out there, place out there? Ain't it something how bad these here white folks is getting here in Chicago? Lord, getting so you think you right down in Mississippi. Of course, I think it's wonderful how our folks keep pushing on out. You hear some of these Negroes around here talking about how they don't go where they ain't wanted and all them, but not me, honey. Wilhelmina Othella Johnson goes anywhere, anytime she feels like it. Which is not true. (laughs) Now, this is my take on this, you know, looking from the psychological angle. She shows up, I think that she's angry because she resents that the younger family is going to make a move to rise above her station in life. And she's going in there to subtly terrorize them and undercut it and try to prevent it from happening. 
Oh, she's like every sideline, what do they call them, quarterbacks? Armchair quarterbacks. Armchair quarterbacks, to use the Teddy phrase. She's not getting in the arena, but she'll judge everyone else who does. Well, what's interesting is that people who are non-competitive, like Miss Johnson, they resent it when your drive to succeed exposes their lack of confidence. And when their lack of confidence is exposed, that's when they go about the business of trying to shoot you down. But she does it super mean and super nice all at the same time. I mean, just, oh, well, they're so cute and all so sweet. Oh, I'm sorry that you might get blown up in the process is is kind of what she's trying to say without her words. Right. And again, trying to undermine their confidence for what they're about to do. And of course, she has to throw God in there. You know, I'm praying to God every day that don't nothing like that happen. But you have to think of life like it is. And these here Chicago pecker woods is some bad pecker woods. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, and, of course, the whole time Mama is graciously holding her tongue, letting the woman speak her nonsense. And as if that's not enough, she has to turn to criticizing Benita. And now she starts saying things to Benita. When this is when we get into some of the subtle stuff that, I wouldn't have known if, if you hadn't have told me about it. So Mrs. Johnson, who we've established, is just a horrible person. In fact, at some point, they compare her to the KKK, yeah. uh, which is the Ku Klux Klan, the people with the white hoods. But anyway, Mrs. Johnson says this, The youngers is too much for me. You sure one proud acting bunch of colored folks. Well, I always thinks like Booker T. Washington said that, time education has spoiled many a good plow hand oh and we have to camp out here for a moment this is super important because Hansberry as the author does something uh that's deliciously interesting to history nerds and we would pick up on this okay back in the introduction we laid out the fact that Hansberry was a contemporary and acquaintance of W.E.B. Du Bois and she had connections with uh, his literary publications in the NAACP. Well, they take a swipe right here. He uses the unlikable character. I'm sorry, she uses the unlikable character of Mrs. Johnson to take a stab at W.E.B. Du Bois's nemesis, who was Booker T. Washington. So why do they not like each other? Aren't they both civil rights activists? Well, a couple things about this. First of all, um, when Hansberry is writing... Raising in the Sun. This is pre... Uh, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. is on the rise. He, he hasn't come to the status yet that he's going to achieve, nor has uh, uh, many other branches of the civil rights movement. They're actually in their evolution at the exact time she's writing this book. So the larger civil rights names at that time period would have been W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. And uh, they represent a northern and southern view on racism and integration and all those issues. And one sidelight I want to point out is that um, in American history, from the day this country was founded, from the very beginning, we had a distinct northern nation, we had a distinct southern nation, and that was in white culture and in black culture both. And these two countries grew up side by side with different forms of government, different... uh, different views on capitalism and all kind of things. And so it's interesting to see that thread 
transverse across time and show up in the African-American communities through Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. So basically you have the Southern approach to how to handle the civil rights movement versus the Northern approach, and she's on Team North. She is, right. Booker T. Washington uh, was had written a, a work called The Atlanta Compromise, and in The Atlanta Compromise, first of all, let me say this, we could spend a whole entire episode just talking about Du Bois and Washington. We're not going to do that. I'm going to give you the extremely short version, right? The Atlanta Compromise, which was promoted by Booker T. Washington, was that African Americans should work for economic opportunity and worry about political equality later on, that they should accept the current discriminations in the South as they were and work for equality through economic means. Well, um, Booker T. Washington was born a slave. He came directly out of that era. He He's educated... Um, He's educated at Hampton Institute, uh, a Freedmen's Bureau school in Wayland Seminary. So he has a very different experience. W.E.B. Du Bois has been from a family of free blacks for several generations. He went to the University of Berlin and got a doctorate at Harvard. So he's traveled. He has a whole different experience. And Du Bois, who was Hansberry's contemporary and mentor, was, we demand equality on all fronts now, immediately. And so you have uh, Du Bois founding NAACP to promote that. You know, he writes uh, The Souls of Black Folk, which is one of his super important works contrasted from Up From Slavery, which is Washington's seminal work. And anyway, we could go on and on and on. So we have a Southern African-American experience and a Northern African-American experience. And Hansberry is taking a dig at the South. So he basically Booker T saying, we have to go this slow. You don't realize how many people we have here. We got to get some money, like the George Murchison approach. Yes. And she's the beneath it. No, no. I want my dignity. I want the, And I can understand where she's coming from. Well, I can understand where they're both coming from. Right. And so did the African community in the 1950s. And so the point being, uh, to me... I just find it fascinating that this is this is where her artistry comes out. Hansberry cleverly works in a super important historical reference that <clears throat> I think we could get overlooked if I didn't dwell on it. Coming out of the mouth of <laughs> chumpy old Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> well, I think it's super important that Mrs. Johnson is given uh, the perspective of Booker T. Washington on top of the words. Oh, dear. Well, the last thing she says is, Mama, if there are two things we as a people have to overcome, one is the Ku Klux Klan and the other is Mrs. Johnson. Which, can we take that as yet another dig at Booker T. Washington? I know, poor thing. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, Walter, we're going to find out, has been gone. And he comes back in, and his boss has called. He's been skipping work for three days. And he's spent those three days basically at the Green Hat, which is just a funny name for a bar that he sits at. It's a jazz bar, and he's been there for three days moping and boping he goes he goes walking and he goes to the green hat he goes walking again and he goes to the green hat and you know where he's going to the green hat and he goes you know what i like about the green hat they have this cat that got that they got there who blows a sacks he blows he talks to me he ain't about five feet tall and he's got a conked head and his eyes is always closed and he's all music good grief well, he he appreciates the guy's lostness in his art. <laughs> and he appreciates not having to take responsibility for his own life. Makes me mad. Oh, okay. Just saying. But anyway, <laughs> Mama has been thinking about this. And she does something that I want to hear your opinion on. She's made a decision. 
she, she says this, listen to me now. I say I've been wrong, that I've been doing to you what the rest of the world been doing to you, Walter. What you ain't never understood is that I ain't got nothing, don't own nothing, ain't really wanted nothing that wasn't for you. There ain't nothing as precious to me. There ain't nothing worth holding on to. Money, dreams, nothing else. If it means, if it means, it's going to destroy my boy. I paid the man $3,500 down on the house. That leaves $6,500. Monday morning, I want you to take this money and take $3,000 and put it in a savings account for Benita's medical schooling. The rest you put in a checking account with your name on it. And from now on, any penny that come out of it or that you go in, it is for you to look after, for you to decide. It ain't much, but it's all I got in the world, and I'm putting it in your hands. And I'm telling you to be the head of this family from now on, like you're supposed to be. What do you think of that? Well, the whole scene is going to end again on Walter, as it began on Walter. And now Walter is going to go from complete crushed in his hopes to all of a sudden his dreams are back. Uh, it's going to be interesting the effect it's going to have on him. And Mama says, I ain't never stopped trusting you like I ain't never stopped loving you. And of course, his accusations were, you didn't love me because you spent all the money on a house and things of that nature. And uh, Walter, does he even say thank you? <laughs> he just moves on so quickly to his joy. Well, he's super excited. Now, you're a parent. You got a daughter and a son. Is this wise of Mama? Is this fair? I mean, I know you've read the rest of the play, but if you if you hadn't, and you were looking at this, and you look at Walter, where he is at his life, is this, is there value in what she's doing? She knows he can blow it. Right. And she, well, interesting side note. First of all, he's in his mid-30s. Right. He, this is a dream. These are his plans. He's talked about it a long time. She is willing to spend $3,000 to prove her love to him. Wow. And so, if she gives him the money and he blows it, I he has a son. I can't speak for how a woman would react to that, but I'm projecting that the woman would say, "I proved my love to you. I gave you all that I had left." So the idea being, if he lose, if she doesn't give it to him in her mind, he's gonna, he'll always be low, no matter right. what. And she will always be failing as a mother, in his eyes. Well, he's happy for the moment. And, and he is. And the first thing he does, the first person he goes to is his son, Travis. And he begins a conversation with Travis that will end the section. He goes on to say, you wouldn't understand yet, son, but your daddy's going to make a transaction, a business tra transaction that's going to change our lives. And he goes on to talk about he's going to be a businessman. I mean, after a day of conferences and secretaries getting things wrong the way they do because an executive's life is hell, man. It's going to be all hard work. But he's excitedly telling, it's all his, dreamy. He's telling his dream to his son. Um, and then he says later on, we're going to cover the floor with catalogs of all the great schools in America around you. In other words, I'm going to take my success and transfer it on to you. And he goes on to say, he ends the whole scene with, you just name it, son, and I hand you the world. So Walter is desperately wanting the dignity 
to give his son something of value and worth. He desperately wants his son's respect to end that scene. Well, we'll conclude there. A lot going on. Uh, Next week, we're going to finish scene three uh, of act two, and then we'll take on act three, which only has one scene. So that won't take too long. Well, and that'll conclude and wrap that up, and uh, we'll see how everything's going to wind up in the end for the younger family in that scene. Well, we hope you've enjoyed it. Please subscribe. Visit our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com. There you go. See us on Facebook, on Instagram, social media. Please uh, write us. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us your suggestions, your ideas. We'd love to hear from you. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.